For the past three years, we have begun our January uh, with a, a series that talks about our mental health. Uh, and this ghost series, uh, as we kind of move into our fourth season of, of teaching this, we've, we've sort of said a lot, but we still feel like there's more things to say. Uh, perhaps if you've not been with us over the past three years, which is, again, fine, but you might want to catch up just on our YouTube channel where you can kind of see the journey that we've been carving uh, and sort of navigating our way through. Largely, we, we teach this series because, because there are things that haunt our minds. There are things that sort of come upon us and they, they spook us, they, they unsettle us, they, they worry us. But not only, not only do these things haunt us, but the feeling of being haunted, if you talk to people that struggle with their mental well-being, they'll often say that it, it kind of leaves them feeling a little disconnected, almost as if they're not fully here. Our, our mental struggles can make us feel like we perhaps are the ghosts. So for us, it seems important to begin the year like this. They, they tell us that January the 12th is the most depressing day of the year. Uh, it's the beginning of, of, of sort of like work is definitely back. The Christmas holidays are definitely over. Uh, the credit card bills are starting to arrive to remind you that your budgeting wasn't quite as you'd liked it to have been in the lead up to Christmas. And we find ourselves, it's still dark outside. Uh, it seems that somebody has turned off the heating in the world and, and everything's freezing cold. So we come to church and thinking, well, here I'll get some joy and some excitement. And we're teaching a series about stress and anxiety and suicide and depression. And we're like, oh my goodness, like this is heavy. So why do we do this? Why, do we, why are we doing this for the fourth year in a row? And one of the reasons actually can be found simply by looking at the stats. One in four people will encounter some sort of mental health problem every year. 10% of people in North America can expect to have a major depressive episode in the course of their life. 50% of us will exhibit some sort of symptoms of depression over the course of our life. One in 13 people globally suffer with an anxiety-related illness. Well, that's the global figure. If you live in the, in the so-called West, that number is one in six. So one in six of us will encounter some sort of anxiety-related illness in the course of our life. That's you know, roughly about two in every row in this building. The, the stats, and you've heard me say this before, but they still are worth repeating. In 1960, the average age for the onset of a depressive issue uh, was 45. Today, the average age is 14. Somewhere in the last several years, something's changed where it's our teenagers that are beginning to encounter the sort of challenges that used to be kind of left for those of us approaching middle age. And worryingly, what we're seeing amongst teenagers is an increasing and apparently out of control rise in self-harm and suicide. But that's not just excluding uh, everybody else. In Canada today, the ninth biggest cause of death in our country is suicide. The ninth thing you are most likely to die of in this country is taking your own life. And perhaps sobering for those of us sat in a room like this is other than Quebec, Alberta is the province with the highest suicide rate in all of Canada. Like what is going on there? 
Tony DeCoupel said uh, some years back in in Newsweek, in a time defined by ever more social progress and astounding innovations, we have never been more burdened by sadness or more consumed by self-harm. DeCoupel continues in this article to note that that what's really interesting is that our our knowledge of, of mental health has gone up. Our psychologists are getting better and better at diagnosis, have been able to articulate what it is that a person might perhaps be struggling with. To some extent, we've managed to reduce the stigmas around talking about our mental health. But yet, all of the extra knowledge, all of the extra work, all of the increase in our science And all of the stats are still going in what we'd probably agree is the wrong direction. Our increased knowledge and awareness isn't reducing the encounters that we have with things that challenge our minds. Despite the fact that we're learning more, and despite the fact that we're working hard to reduce stigma, I I think it'd be fair to say that admitting to our mental health struggles are, are still things that we struggle with. It's still not easy for us. And I think part of the reason for that is that we categorize mental health differently than physical health. We think of them as very, very different things. Uh, For example, perhaps you uh, had an accident while skiing and broke your arm. You'll wear that kind of arm in a sling with some pride. You notice people turn up and they're like, have you seen my injury? (laughs) You should just see the hill. That I, that, that I hit, you know? We, we wear it as a sort of badge of honor that look at the brave things I've done with my life and look what I did and, and this is the injury I'm carrying. Yet at the same time, if our working situation, if our life environment, if what, it's, what is going on with us is causing us such overwhelm that our mental health is struggling, we keep it a secret. In fact, the statistics tell us that that many of us don't even tell our own partners about the journey that we're struggling with in our own mind. Physical health is something we talk about easily, sometimes even can wear with a sense of pride. Mental health is something we keep secret. And so perhaps some of my hopes for this series, and why do we teach it again and again and again, is that I want us as a community As a group of Jesus followers, I I want us to take our mental health seriously. I want us to take what it is that goes on in our minds as significant. Perhaps resist that Western tradition that many of us live within, probably traces back to Descartes' famous, I think, therefore I am. That what we do in the West often is our brains are for thinking and our body is what is about health and the two don't join together. And therefore we find ourselves resistant to taking our mental health seriously. And this phrase, our mental health, I mean our mental health, as in my mental health and your mental health as an an individual. Sometimes I think what happens in a series like this is that we think, oh wow, we're teaching that series again on mental health, I should really bring my friend who's depressed. Uh, So hey, you're depressed, you should come to church with me uh, today. I'm not sure that counts as evangelism, just to be clear. Uh, or, 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 hey, you know, you're struggling with some anxiety. Here's nine sermons that my pastor's done over the past three years that you're going to find really helpful because we all love a podcast that will fix us. <laughs> 
But I wanna talk about our own mental health. Actually, what's going on with me? Not necessarily the person next to you, not necessarily someone else you know, but actually what would it mean like for us to take it seriously for ourselves? Because I think that actually some of the roots of our stigma find themselves in this particular issue, that we are resistant to think about how the question of mental health might apply to me. I'm kind of okay with the fact that we'll talk about it in church and that might help other people, but I don't really want to wrestle with the implication of what that does for me. How might it apply to me? And many of us actually, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we find ourselves locked into a cognitive dissonance that refuses to sort of take what we're experiencing and what we want to be true and allowing them to meet. So we might be experiencing the symptoms of of depression or anxiety or overwhelm, but our upbringing or our background or our worldview says, no, that can't be true of me, so I don't want it to be true. And and I wonder sometimes if, if one of our struggles with admitting to our own journey in our mind is that, is that we want to be Well, let's put it this way. We kind of like that science is giving us more and more diagnosis. We like that science has got more specific and and helpful in in, in defining things. And one of the reasons I think we like this is because it allows us to draw a line in the sand between the normal and the unstable. And then we like to place ourselves in the category of normal. I don't really mind where the line is drawn as long as I'm on what I consider to be the right side of it. And I think if I can place myself on this side of the line, if I can place myself on the normal side of the line, then it kind of allows me to sort of ignore what's going on in my head. Sort of just, you know, kind of wipe away some of my concerns or thoughts about what might be going on. And you see this all the time, that people, uh, people that are stressed will say, oh, you know what, it's just a busy time. I'm just going through a busy time. To which I always want to ask the question, how long has this time been? Christians, you know, kind of spiritualize the language. We say, it's a busy season. You know, if the season is roughly the length of an Albertan winter, it's not a season anymore. It's just the way life is now. (laughs) And, And so often we speak about this stress as seasonal when it actually has snuck up and become just the way of life. Or, or we kind of play down our anxieties. I, you know, I'm just a bit of a perfectionist. I just like things the way they are. And we sometimes reward that and we, and we speak to that positively when actually inside it's driven by different things. And maybe our depression is just, hey, I'm feeling a little down. But this does something. And I think, and, and I've said to you this before in this series, but it bears uh, repeating I'm not a psychologist, uh, and there are psychologists uh, in our community and elsewhere that you can speak to for sort of professional help in this. But just things I observe are, are simply this, that when we take that attitude that says, here's normal and I'm over here, and I refuse to engage with the question of my own mental health, this achieves one very specific, and if we're honest, terrifying thing. We end up feeling very, very alone. And it may be a self-defense mechanism. It may be that we just in our brains don't want to admit that there might be something that needs some help in me. It might be that my, my kind of mythology is such that I must be individual and I must be independent, so I don't want to admit to that. It could be something from our background. Many of us have, have encountered backgrounds where being honest about what goes on in your head you know, isn't necessarily safe space. In fact, I just heard about a pastor just recently who, uh, a youth pastor who was at his, uh, his church's leadership retreat, 
And in a moment of sharing during a prayer time in this retreat, the youth pastor admitted that he was struggling with depression. He returned home from the retreat and was fired by the church. Uh, and so I was, I was sharing with a friend and I said, I find some sense of hope and joy in the fact that, that I had only been in my job a, a couple of months and I started this series in which I talked about my own anxiety and depression and I didn't get fired, we turned it into an annual series. <laughs> I think there's something hopeful in our willingness to talk about this because for many of us, it's not something we want to talk about. We want to be self-reliant. But if our mental health is left unaddressed, if our mental health and our stress and our anxiety and our depression are, are not looked at, what happens is our world starts to shrink around us. This is one of the things that the depression and anxiety and overwhelm, they all do the same thing. They shrink your world. They make it smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually it's just you and you're alone. And, and I think part of the reason that this is not something that we enjoy talking about is that I, I think if we're honest, we don't like being vulnerable. You know, you know I don't particularly like being vulnerable. I, I'm, I'm always aware of the fact that when I talk about this in this particular series, there's a lot of you looking at me and I seem to be the only person talking. This is like, you know that nightmare that you have when you go to a psychologist? This is like, this is like that times 600. Um, so I'm really loving being here right now. Um, and, and part of the reason is, you know, I don't actually enjoy talking about my own anxiety. I, I don't enjoy confessing publicly on an annual basis that I struggle with the sort of depression that sometimes just, I don't really want to go to work and I don't want to get up and I, I don't want to go out. I don't like as a pastor, sort of because of, again, the sort of my experience around the world, I don't really like confessing that, that I struggle with anxiety and that sometimes that feels a little out of control. And, and you might come back to me and sort of say, well, if you don't like talking about it, why are you teaching this for the fourth year? Uh, you know, I, I did the math and actually I, I, my, my role here at Westside is now three and a half years uh, long. And by the end of this series, I'll have spent three months of that three and a half years talking about my mental health. Uh, which might suggest to you, or maybe he doesn't have a problem with that. But, but here's, here's what's going on. I would pre prefer to offer a different image to you. I would prefer to be that guy that has it all together, you know, and, and it doesn't have any struggles. I'd love to come up and say, you know what, I have no problems because I love Jesus and he loves me. And... Um, I don't know what your problem is. Uh, you know, I would, I would love that to be my story, but that's my arrogance speaking. That's my, that's my wish to be self-reliant speaking. And if I chose to go that way, and people can choose to go that way, the, the ultimate truth would be my world would get smaller and smaller. And I'd find myself eventually locked into my own little shrunk world. So I have to face this sort of uh, kind of vulnerability, I, I suppose, because I think it's the right way forward. And one of the things then I, 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 that kind of drives me in that direction is actually scripture. Because what I notice in scripture is that the Bible is relentlessly honest with us about the emotional life of its characters. The Bible doesn't hide that from us. If you actually are willing to go look, you see it there. Jesus is the man of sorrows. You know, many of the key exemplary people of scripture suffer with what we today would recognize as anxiety and depression. You don't need to look far, you can just kind of leaf through the pages of some of these stories and very, very few of our biblical heroes get away with life without some sort of emotional pain and scarring. We talked earlier in this teaching year about Jeremiah. This incredible prophet that, that we spent weeks learning from actually sometimes says things that perhaps some of us might relate to. Look at Jeremiah's confession in chapter 15 and verse 18. 
But why, why this chronic pain? This ever-worsening wound and no healing in sight. You're nothing, God, but a mirage, a lovely oasis in the distance, and then nothing. And, and that's a text from the Bible. Maybe not the text you expect to encounter from the Bible. Here you have a biblical hero saying, hey God, I'm not sure you're in this. I think I'm absolutely on my own here. And maybe you found yourself in that space at some point. There you just think, I think I'm the one person that God has forgotten. The exception that makes the rule, that God's always gonna remember us apart from me. And Jeremiah speaks to us and says, that's not a new emotion. The sense of feeling lost and hopeless and anxious and depressed, that's not new. You didn't invent it. It wasn't invented by the Western world. This is how humans are. But you notice what Jeremiah also does? And I think we all do this. We do this in relation to our own mental health and we do it in relation to the mental health of others. Jeremiah does the same thing that we still do today. He asks, why? Why, why, Jeremiah asks. I think this is because we're people of reason, we're people of logic, and everything has to make sense to us. We're convinced that there must be a reason for which everything happens. There must be a logic that we can apply, a kind of path that we can follow, an algorithm that makes sense as to why things are the way that we are. We're trained as Bible readers to say, why does Jeremiah feel like this? We're asked, why do I feel like this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this particular thing going on? And I wonder if there's a reason why we're convinced that we should always ask the question, why? Is it because if everything happens for a reason, if, we're, if there's just some big machine and a variety of cogs that are kind of churning its way around in it and, and, and it all should make sense and it's all part of God's plan, we say, then it must have a reason. But I wonder if the real thing that's going on there is if we can find the reason, then we can figure out how to fix it. We almost imagine our life like some sort of engine and that we would take it to the mechanic and the mechanic would say, well, the problem is going on is this part here and you need to take a wrench and turn this or you need to add some oil or you need to, you need to replace this particular part. And we want that to be true of our lives, that it's a simple diagnosis that says, here's what's wrong and here's how you fix it. Because if we can diagnose why, then we can fix it and that means we're still in control. That means that we still have some sense of agency in all of this, that we can make sense of it. Because we love that sense that there's a reason to everything. Think about this, as dark as it might be. From time to time, what happens in our world is, is some celebrity of some star factor, uh, we've noticed it several times in the last four or five years, the celebrities taken their own life. And if you notice that over the ensuing days that the media, depending on the sort of apparent size of the celebrity, will depend on how much media time is given to this. But one thing is true, I've noticed in every single situation that this happens. The media ask Jeremiah's question, why? And we become convinced that there must be a reason that we can track down to understand why this particular person would take their life. And we say things like, my goodness, how much money did they have? You would think that they would never have a reason to take their life. Or look how much fame they had. Like, why would they do this? to themselves. And I wonder if some of it is because we want there to be a reason so that we can kind of learn to avoid that reason ourselves. Or is it perhaps deeper that we just don't want to cope 
with a world that doesn't make sense. We'd actually rather live with an idea of a God who's playing us all like pawns, a God who's making things happen to us because it's all part of a big plan. We'd sometimes almost rather that than to the biblical truth that our world is broken, and in a broken world, broken stuff happens. And it's not God's plan that this broken stuff happens, but this is the reality of the world that we find ourselves in. And we want to put context to it, and we want to put reason to it, because that will help us make sense of things. And we wanna ask why. Depression is sometimes described as emotional pain without context. Or as one of the great writers, uh, I think, on the subject of depression, Andrew Solomon, he, he phrases it like this. Depression can, be, can best be described as an emotional pain that forces itself on us against our will and then breaks free of its externals. Depression is not just a lot of pain. Grief is depression in proportion to circumstance. Depression is grief out of proportion to circumstance. It's tumbleweed distress that thrives on thin air, growing despite its detachment from the nourishing earth. What if there isn't always a reason? What if you can't always make sense of it? And I wonder if perhaps because we, uh, particularly in the Western world, we, we kind of think in terms of meritocracy, that, that, that you get in life what you've put into it. So if you've done this, you deserve that. If you've worked through this process, then this is the results of, of, of doing that. And therefore, we kind of find it terrifying to even consider the notion that maybe some things happen that are not connected to reason. It's just sometimes the way things are. Perhaps that's why we have so much dissonance about our mental health is we just don't want to challenge our worldview that some things don't make sense. Now, it might not surprise you to know that I think the Bible can help us with this. Hopefully after three years, that's not a revelation to you from me. <laughs> that's kind of where I stand on pretty much most things. But the curious thing for me is that the Bible helps us in this, perhaps not in the way that we would expect the Bible to help us. Popularized Christianity has kind of sort of, and this is a perception I think of the church sometimes from people who don't come to church, and it's also a perception uh, about church from people that do uh, come to church, is that basically what Christianity offers to the world is to take all of your mourning and turn it into dancing. Uh, and that's what we'll do, and we'll do it instantly. That you will somehow come through the red doors of hope and you'll enter into the room and all of a sudden everything will be okay because Jesus loves you. And all of your problems will disappear, you'll get a promotion, your children will be better looking by Monday morning, and everything's just gonna be great with you. And in one sense, we say it slightly facetiously, but it seems to be rooted into so much of our, our kind of popular theology that almost as if church is some sort of conveyor belt, that you just lump all of your pain and depressions and anxiety on this belt, they go through the machine, come out the other side, and they're just relentless joy because we somehow have got this idea that Christians should have one emotion, and that's just permanent happiness. But there's a five-chapter book in the Bible. It's hidden in plain sight. You'll find it just after the book of Jeremiah. In fact, what's interesting is, it's right after the book of Jeremiah, and Hebrew tradition holds that even though this text is anonymous, it's written by Jeremiah. And this book that follows Jeremiah, which is said to be written by Jeremiah, is called Lamentations. Well, wait a minute, 
I remember the Jeremiah series. Jeremiah was this incredible figure of faith. He was totally like following God and he was committed to, to really trusting God in every situation. And now you're telling me he wrote a book called Lamentations and that's even in the Bible. And then you turn to Lamentations and I wanna to put to you that Lamentations is some of the darkest, most despondent, tear-stained thoughts that you will ever encounter. There are words of loss, words of grief, words of abandonment, words of outrage. You see a person kind of railing against the way that the world has arranged things and the pain that that caused. Lamentations is ugly, it's vulnerable, it's painful, and it's kind of everything we've been taught not to expect to see in scripture. This is simply from chapter one in the first couple of verses of chapter two. Jeremiah says, this is why I weep and my eyes overflow with tears. No one is near to comfort me, no one to restore my spirit. See, Lord, how distressed I am. I'm in torment within and in my heart I am disturbed. People have heard my groaning. There is no one to comfort me. My eyes fail from weeping. I am in torment within. My heart is poured out on the ground. Lamentations is home for those of us who suffer. It'll give you safe space when the world sort of overwhelms you. But I wonder if what makes this surprising to us and what makes it actually so hard for us as Christians to sometimes just lean into lament is that I think in the Western church, we're just really bad at lament. We seem to have got ourselves jammed on one emotion. We want sermon series that tell us everything will be great and everything's gonna be okay. We kinda want to turn up to church and Sunday services be some sort of kind of visual working out of the anthem of the Lego movie. You know, everything is awesome. And we kind of program ourselves to be, that's what we expect and that's what we want. So we, we kind of lean into teaching series and we want teaching series that show us how everything can be okay as a Christian. And we want kind of, kind of monotone worship that's always great and everything's brilliant and we just live life at volume 11 because we follow Jesus and therefore everything's okay with us. And then what happens is that if somebody is brave enough to actually admit that life isn't quite working for them, that something is haunting them, we then shift into the one gear that we all seem to want to shift into, which is how do we fix and cure that person? Because that's our only option now, is how do we get you from where you are to everything being awesome? But then there's this five chapter book called Lamentations. And at some level, Lamentations is saying something to us, which is simply this that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay with scripture, it's okay with God. So lamentation calls us to be patient. It calls us to be patient with ourselves and with each other. Henry Novello, when speaking of lament, says this, lament serves as an effective corrective to the type of religious faith that would withdraw from the troubles of life and lose itself in the detached world of heavenly or holy things. In Jeremiah's writing of Lamentations, he validates a way of life that has tears in it. He validates it and tells us that God accepts that. That shouldn't surprise us. The whole story of the Bible is leading towards a God alone and desolate, dying in our own dirt somewhere outside of Jerusalem. The cross of Jesus shows us that God is aware firsthand of what human suffering looks like. 
And while we kind of want the cross to solve everything immediately and fix it all for us now so that we can say, yes, it all makes sense, that's not actually what the cross does for us. It promises us a future and it promises us hope and we get to live in that. But one of the things we have to hold on to is that the cross promises us that in the depths of our sufferings, Jesus is there with us and we are not alone. And that's kind of what we want, isn't it? We don't really want an idea. We don't want a concept. We don't want a self-help project. We don't want a religion. And if I even dare say it, we don't even want a Bible verse thrown at us when things are overwhelming. We want to know that we're not alone. And the story of Jesus tells us that we're not, that God is always with us. And Jeremiah seems to know this because even in the absolute desolation of Jeremiah, when he's talking in Lamentations, and he says this in chapter three, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall, I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I think that one of the reasons we should always talk about mental health in church is that it's one of the ways that the church witnesses to all of us. That people have value, that people have worth, and that God's faithful towards them regardless of where they find themselves. Whether they're cured or uncured. Whether it's anxiety or depression. Lamentation speaks to us and says it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to be here like that. It's okay to confess that you don't feel like God is with you. If you read Lamentations, if you sit down and, and, and perhaps you know, just kind of brace yourself for five tough, tough chapters, you'll notice one thing about Lamentations. God never appears in it. God doesn't appear in some flash of lightning at the end and say, there, 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 Jeremiah, everything's okay. Actually, much like the life that all of us live, Jeremiah has to hold on to this thought that God is with me, even when I can't see it, even when I can't hear it. So to follow Jesus, I think, is to recognize that your depressions, your stress, your anxiety, your thoughts of harm, that God accepts them and invites us to trust him, to hold on to him, to believe, even when it feels like we're completely alone, to believe that he is for us. I find myself connecting uh, just this week to this thought from Willie Jennings in a sermon he gave at Duke University. Jennings says this, well, one of the bad habits of Christians is that we often forget where we meet. Our sense of holy geography is very bad. We meet at the body of Jesus. We always meet in the presence of a God willing and eager to meet the broken. The broken of mind, the broken of body, the broken of spirit. God creates place real place. God in flesh. God in Jesus is about making place, real place where God may be seen, God may be felt, God may be heard, and yes, God may be touched. In the place that God creates, we may touch the body of God and live. So I don't want to offer answers. I can't. I don't want to offer solutions, and I definitely don't want to offer reasons. I'm not trying to make sense of everything. What I want to offer is a table, 
A table that reminds us that if there is a line between okay and not okay, we all fall on the side that's not okay. We all need a savior. As much as we want to be the savior, we realize that we need to be saved. We need to trust in the faithfulness of the God who sent Jesus. So I wanna invite you to the table. A table that reminds us that we're not alone. A table that reminds us that we need to trust God's everlasting faithfulness. But I want to invite you to this table and remind you that this table is for anyone who needs Jesus. It could be your first time. It could be your thousandth time. This table is for you. It doesn't matter whether you were dedicated here, baptized, confirmed, whether you're a member somewhere else or whether you've been coming here for years, you are welcome at this table because this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So please, come to the tables. But let me simply say this by way of prayer this morning. May you find it true in your depression, in your anxiety, in your stress and overwhelm. May you find it true that Jesus' compassions never fail. They are new every morning for great is his faithfulness. And may you find it in yourself to trust that and to know his grace and his peace is with you. Amen.